Hello and welcome to The Chiefs here on Monocle 24. I'm Tyler Brule. Over the course of this special edition of the Big Interview Series, I'll be speaking to C-suite leaders from industries big and small about how their sectors move forward. Today, we speak to the CEO of Swedbank, Jens Henriksen, from his office in the Swedish capital of Stockholm. Henriksen has been at the helm of the Nordic Bank and financial services giant since October 2019. Prior to that, he led the Swedish insurance beast Folksam and even spent some time at the Swedish Ministry of Finance and the IMF. Before the COVID-19 crisis hit, Henriksen was already exercising some damage control for problems of the bank's own. So how did Swedbank react to the current crisis and what is the long-term vision for the customers and SMEs that rely on it? Plus, does Sweden's unconventional approach to lockdown mean the country's economic recovery looks any better? Well, I'm delighted to welcome Jens Henriksen to the Chief's edition of The Big Interview. Mr. Hendrickson, I wanted to start, and it's almost the obvious question, because no country has perhaps received as much positive, curious, and maybe slightly head-scratching press as Sweden. So as the CEO of a major Nordic player in finance, how do you observe and how do you regard the Swedish situation, your unique approach that your government has taken to not having a lockdown. And really, maybe we can explore a little bit what that means from, again, of course, the CEO of a bank. You probably have a very different view, maybe, if um, someone was sitting in Frankfurt or maybe in in Geneva or elsewhere. Well, you know, I'm a Swede, so that means I trust the government. (laughs) One thing, I I think people are over-exaggerating the differences. You're right that we're not in the lockdown, but you have to remember that the prime minister was on TV, looked at everybody and said, be careful out there and behave. And we as Swedes, I think we're quite a norm-based country. So that means that we try to behave. So I think actually the differences between Sweden and other countries are a bit exaggerated. Nonetheless, I think the impact of uh, the lockdown itself has been sort of smaller in Sweden than, than other places. Will that be good or bad in the future? Well, I think it will be good, but Sweden is also a very export-oriented country. And as such, we are more vulnerable to the sort of the effects of the coronavirus than I think a lot of other countries are. And putting that in perspective, and certainly sitting and when you talk to your board, obviously you're speaking to a lot of the press, but probably most importantly, as you're saying, it's an export-driven country. You're speaking to your partners, to your clients. Yes, as you said, uh, maybe it'll be a better story. But it's still been a tough ride. As you said, it's not been vastly different. Swedes have behaved. But when you look around at the economic landscape, if you look at the SMEs of Sweden, if you look at at the big players, uh, what is the mood? If you can sort of somehow gauge the sentiment right now. There is actually a pretty good economist study from 2009 from a few economists in Oxford. They looked the effects on the pandemic, which they made a model on and put it on the UK economy. And what they saw were basically three consequences. The first consequence was from the pandemic as such. And honestly, that's not very big because uh, people are sick and then the mortality rate they looked at was 1%. And that did not have much effect on the economy. The second effect they saw was that of the lockdown and they found a tremendous impact. But the third effect was on consumption. 
And a lot of people in this kind of environment, what they do is they stack up money. And that's exactly what we see. So if I divide the customers of Swedbank into three different buckets, I would say that what you see for ordinary people is that they are having more money on their deposit accounts. So they're not consuming as much as we saw before. They are asking for amortization relief, which we give them on a sort of a very generous basis. If you look on the small and medium-sized companies, what they are doing is they are hankering down. They're trying to survive. They understand that taking on a loan in a period like this will maybe give me more problem in the future. And we expect some of them to come back a bit with it. Then if you come to the large companies, we've seen quite an interest. So all the large export-oriented companies, what they do is they come to us in order to stack up capital so they have liquidity. If we look on the other side, namely in our credit cards business, we see a dramatic fall in the businesses that, uh, well, you know, that is travel, that is hotel, that's restaurants. But we see a pickup when it comes to people going to the store to buy uh, potatoes and ordinary food. Let's talk about the consumer for a moment. And I'm wondering, because you had this softer situation than much of the world. And maybe that means that also people remain in this, I don't want to call it a slumber state, but maybe it almost lasts a little bit longer in Sweden. Because what I just witnessed in Switzerland, since we saw that the retail lift, we had lineups in front of Gucci, we had lineups in front of Louis Vuitton and Hermes. So many sort of speculated, would there be this pent up demand for people to go out and buy a scarf, a handbag, the expensive over-decorated uh, sneaker? And I think a lot of people think, well, probably not. That's more of a Chinese story, etc. You would maybe see this revenge purchasing in China. But we're witnessing that here. And I'm wondering, in Sweden, where it has been softer, then does that also mean the exit from all of this could be a little bit soft as well? I haven't thought about in, in that perspective. You have to remember that we are, first, not the kind of a country that spend that much money on these sort of goods that you talked about. And second, we are a bank for the many, meaning that I think our customers, I think their daily consumption is actually more in the cooperative food store rather than a Gucci store. Perhaps, but I, I would also argue that uh, the people that we saw lined up in Switzerland, certainly they were not Asian consumers because they can't get here. But I don't think they were also, they weren't the high-flying consumers maybe of, of some of the private banks that we know well in this country. I think it is also a mid-middle class customer who wants a, a luxury purchase and they could definitely find their way to Grev Turgatten or another street if they wanted to go and find those brands in Stockholm. So I guess the point is whether it goes back to the sort of softer process and exit. And, and I understand your point is... If you look upon it, is sort of the relief rally. Will it be more distinguished in countries with more lockdown? Yes, I would guess so. In a country, I mean, it's like if you take a cork and, and sort of push it down very deep in the water, it will actually go faster, fly a bit above the water level. But I think the overall effect, the combined effect of this will be less in Sweden than in, in other countries with more suppressed demand. What we've seen also is a lot of home improvement. So a lot of people has been home working and 
having a little bit more time to renovate their garage or something like that. Right. So, so people in uh, the likes of the Bauhauses, of course, uh, your national brand, uh, IKEA, and many others, uh, lots of reorganizing of golf clubs and uh, and other things that go into Swedish garages. I can only imagine. Yes, uh, more Hornbach, more Bauhaus, more IKEA than Gucci and and Hermes. I agree. <laughs> sounds typically you're you're painting almost a cliche image for our listeners, but that's the beauty of radio. <laughs> Let's focus on SMEs. Um, let's say we, we went down to maybe the little town of Müller and we went to Müller by the sea and there was someone who was running a great bakery down there. They were really doing an incredible job. It wasn't one of these businesses that was struggling. And they went to the bank and they went to have a conversation right now and said, look, we've been hit very hard because people haven't been coming down to their houses to open them up for the spring season. What has been on offer? And whether it's at Swedbank or also on the part of your your peers as well, what's been on offer for the SMEs in Sweden? Well, first and the most important, they have a great bakery in Mölle. Uh, I agree. So that's the, the first point. Second point is that when they come to us, we will first give them advice on what kind of help you can get from the government. And what they can do then is that uh, they can ask for help in, in sort of getting the rent down. They can have sort of what they can do is to gain liquidity by postponing their payments in, in taxes. And if there is a less demand, they could maybe give some temporary layoffs. And then the people working in the bakery will get paid roughly the same amount they got before, but you can still keep them on the wage bill. So that's what the first thing would give them advice. The second thing is that we will look on the business and say, okay, so what will the long-term consequences be? And the long-term consequences, you can say, okay, so if this was a business that were running with a healthy margin, we would tell them, well, you have, a, even though Sweden or Mölle will be a bit different in, in the sort of coming years, we would be okay, your business would still be viable. But if you need a loan, we'll give you that. And when we give loans, then what we do is we look on two things. One is relation, and the other thing is risk. So that means that if this baker has been a customer for us for a long time, I mean, they stood up for us during a heavy period when we were sort of a lot of discussion about our sort of incompetence in dealing with, with money laundering. They stood up for us and were still customer with us. Now it's payback time for us. So that means that we need to be there for them. So that's relation. The other thing is, of course, risk. And if the business would turn out that it's not viable, then we would sort of be more hesitant to give it. So that's, I think, the, the perspectives. First, advice, then advice about the government solution, then advice of what we can do, and the third would then be liquidity. Now, of course, we've heard many stories, Mr. Hendrickson, of different schemes, and our, I'm sure our listeners around the world will have heard a lot about the competence or incompetence in terms of getting loans out in the UK. They've done a very good job in, in Switzerland, and they're sort of seen as the gold standard, I think, at the moment. So for those who are not familiar with the relationship between the banks and the government, let's just go back to Müller for a second. Let's say it's Lena and Lars who are running this wonderful bakery, and uh, they had big plans. They wanted to buy two ovens as well. All of these things were part of their grand plan to to really sort of you know make this into a, a proper business. They were going to be mail ordering their Canelbulla to Sweden, all kinds of things. So there was this grand plan. If you looked at it and you believed it, I'm wondering, but still thought, mm, I'm a little bit hesitant as as the local banker. Is there a situation right now though? 
in these COVID times where the Swedish central bank is saying, look, it will back this to the tune of 80 percent, 70 percent. There'll be some type of coverage. Well, what's happening is that the national, Swedish National Debt Office, they have issued so you can get the guarantee from that. I think that company would be a little bit too small for that. And I think this would be a sort of an issue for us as a, a sort of a bank to look upon this. And if we would judge their business plan to be viable, if they would be in a long term customer for us, we would have course, be there for them. Let's talk about, as you said, businesses of scale. And when you look at also your peer group, those who are sitting on the Stockholm Exchange, etc., what, what is the sentiment there now? Okay, so let me take a step backwards and look at sort of the overall picture. And then I'll talk two or three minutes and then maybe I'll get down there. But I think the key point to understand is that there are quite a lot of similarities between this crisis we're seeing now and the financial crisis. I remember when I explained the financial crisis to my, uh, or the Great Recession, when I explained that to my friends, I used to call it that there was a virus that uh, a lot of the banks had got. And that virus was subprime. The problem was that we did not know which bank got the virus and which did not. And therefore, what happened was in the US and the UK and Europe, what you did was stress testing, and then you did triage. And after that, you provided ample liquidity and from the central bank, and then you added a fiscal stimulus. What we're now seeing is actually a mirror of this. So we're seeing a problem with the real economy, and I think the solution is the same. The solution is testing, do triage, help those that need help, and the other ones lets them put them back to work, make sure you run an expansionary monetary policy, and then expansionary fiscal policy. So that's the idea. The real economy now will go through three distinct phases. The first phase is right now, it's mitigation. So what we're doing now is that we're using fiscal policy and monetary policy in a way that's unprecedented. We're pushing out money, we're supporting, we're giving support for people not doing much. Then after a while, when the lockdown eases, what will happen is you get into the second phase and that phase will be about making sure that the cork bounces up as quick and as sustainable as possible. Now, the third phase is then will be budget consolidation. So that means that a few years from now, or I don't know how many years, what will happen is you will come back to some kind of normality. Then what the governments need to do is to pull back demand. They need to raise taxes and cut spendings. So what does all this mean for retail? Well, I think the key point now is you're seeing a lot of consumers, what they're doing is that they are increasing their savings, not consuming as much. Then you will see a boom. I think there will be some pent-up demand. And then you will have a few tough years with increased taxes and cut of spendings. And I think that it will be a few rough years. And I'm not expecting to see the same kind of consumption boom you saw before. It's really enlightening because also it just brings me to a domestic picture and also a global picture. Because as you said, you know, of course, this is a country which not depends, but obviously exports are incredibly important. At the same time, there are a series of global brands when we think about retail, and they're playing on a completely global stage. But I wonder if you divide them in two. Do you think it will be a mixed picture? How do you see uh, what will happen domestically, and then what will be the story for the international players? 
I think that if you have a sort of a sound and good business and you're sort of adopting digital while providing sort of the local presence, I think you still will be strong in the future. I mean, I'm not an expert, so I can go deep dive in, in which parts I will see will last. What concerns me is if you look on, there is a good OECD study that looks how vulnerable countries are to this sort of coronavirus. And then Sweden is actually ranked as one of the countries with the biggest problems because of our large export industry. If a consequence of this crisis would be a sort of deglobalization, that would hurt Sweden more than other countries because we are sort of a very open country, very export-oriented. Do you think, though, regardless, and of course, uh, many of, again, of your peer group, uh, whether down at the WTO in Geneva and elsewhere, talking about it would be a huge tragedy if we saw disruption and meaning, let's say, more nationalistic disruption of the global supply chain. And at the same time, we've heard many calls. We heard here in Switzerland, you know, over the last few weeks, the government saying, "Okay, look, you know what? It's great that prices are low in Asia, but we're having to send, you know, really a hell of a lot of freighters every day to go and pick up masks and all kinds of things in China. Forget about the Greta side. Do you think we have maybe a bit of a realignment will occur in Sweden, in the likes of Switzerland, uh, your your neighbor's not too far away from your Lund days in Denmark, where there is a bit of a rebalancing. You know, do we need to be sending everything to be made in factories in Shenzhen and elsewhere? No, I think there will be some kind of pushback. And if you look on sort of the large, big corporates in Sweden, when uh, something happened around the globe, suddenly they needed to stop their production very quick. So I think what you will see, both in sort of terms of of how the government will stack up on different resources in order to prepare for this 100-year event, I think you will see the same in a lot of uh, companies as, as well. So I think this uh, sort of supply uh, division will take a hit on that. On the other hand, I listened to Paul Krugman the other day, and his point was that, well, you always think that this sort of will have a big impact and a long-lasting impact. But it turns out that after a while, people tend to forget. And I think one of the things that has sort of been the worst with this corona crisis is that we really do not know what to do about it because we feel a bit unease because we do not understand it. It was 100 years since we last had a large pandemic and we really don't know how to react to the numbers we see. So I, I think it's too early to say that uh, uh, it will be sort of the crash of globalization, but I think you will at least see a weakness in, in the coming years. At the start of the interview, you painted this wonderful picture for us of maybe it's the snapshot of the bank or how you want the bank to be perceived or how the bank is perceived, which is, of course, a bank of the people. And I'm interpreting this now, but, you know, democratic in the most democratic way. I'm thinking Yentalogum and we're all equal. And and, how, and certainly if I even think of the, the logo of the bank and how it looks and its evolution, um, it definitely plays into all of this mythology. And what I think about is history. When I think about history, I think about, as you said, customers, you know, maybe Lena and Lars and Mula, who've been with you for a very long time. And certainly you, along with some of your other banking friends in the Nordic world, have had a few stumbling issues of late, which of course you know, has been well reported and we don't need to go into that. But what it brings me to is really some of your core customers, your core customers who are not 16 and completely teched up. And when we think about where this crisis has taken us, it's, it's shone a bit of a spotlight on 
aging society and every CEO of every major corporation likes to talk about digitization. But I think we're also seeing now that actually digitization has actually come at a cost to you know, people who are older. Technology moves very fast. Of course, everyone wants to push people onto an iPad, but some people just can't go there. And I'm wondering if there's any lessons that the bank has learned. Do people still need bank branches anymore? Because one thing that we hear again and again is the importance that the pharmacy has played. People need to go to a pharmacy still, and actually they feel a sense of relief. Now, we've seen a great, I would say, demobilization of branches all over the world. And I'm wondering if there's any sort of changed view on Swedbank's side. Well, I think the first key point is that um, this uh, crisis, I mean, to go to sort of the Ram Emanuel, this is a horrible crisis, but I think we're in it now. Let's try to use it and to make the best of it. So that's the first point. Second point is that we have actually as a workplace, it's the same as, as you are now probably working from home or something like that, we've sort of taken steps in becoming much more digitized. I think like 40 to 50% of our employees are working from home. We've managed to do that in a way that I honestly thought was impossible just a few weeks before. What you see now is that I think the banking business in the future is such that People want to have digitized solutions for the easy stuff. If you want to transfer money to your grandkid, you want to do it on the phone. If you want to see how much you have your account, you want to do it on your phone. If you want to pay a bill, you want to do it on the phone. But the important life-changing decisions, you do not want to do that. You want to go into a branch, you want to meet somebody who looks you into your eyes and understands your problems, your possibilities and things like that. So I think what we need to do is to sort of really think through how can we make the simple stuff more digital and how can we make the more complicated stuff more personal. And I think that's the way forward. It's not digitization or a brand is digitization and having a branch. And also I think the standard approach when you come into bank is that the teller or, or the person behind the desk have a better view on your economy than yourself have. So you're saying you see maybe a more humane approach moving forward. I'm wondering if that is maybe one of the outcomes and, and lessons, because certainly it seems when we've been talking to, to CEOs as, as part of this series that there is a latent or certainly in real-time recognition that maybe we've been pushing too far too fast. As you said, of course, it can be screened and it can be branched, but it did seem even as recently as six months ago that it was we were moving into this either or world. And if you were in sort of the either world, if you only wanted branches, then you were, of course, a dinosaur or whatever sector you were in. And you had to sort of be moving headlong, only focusing on digital. But I hear from you that at least in the, in the short term, both will remain important. Yes, we've kept all, I think we have 161 offices. We've kept, I think it's only one that's been closed If you look, in Sweden. If you look in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, we kept our branches open in all the regions. If you look at the service centers where people can call and talk with a real life man or woman, we're still on. So people, they want to have the contact when it's important. Just to, before we go, and it's I liked how you're just shone a spotlight over on, on the Baltic region as well. When we look at, at the reputation of 
Swed Bank, but also just the Nordic banks in general. And of course, you're very new or relatively new in this post. What work needs to be done from a brand image point of view? If I'm entering that market, if I'm potentially a, a new customer, not, not a personal, maybe a corporate customer, etc., is there a lot of marketing and brand image work that you feel still needs to be done as we move out of this and just move into a phase of which is hopefully just business as usual? Well, the first thing to say is I'm extremely proud that we have a home market in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, and we are systemic banks there. It's great to be there. These are countries that will grow a bit more than Sweden, and we have a good people there, and we were extremely proud to help them to grow. Honestly, this is not about marketing. This is about the bank who failed. Swedbank did not uh, have the right uh, governance and internal control in order to prevent uh, suspected money launderers to use Swedbank. We were not good enough. And I think the key point to regaining confidence is to stop that and to make sure that we are branch leading on this. And then I think the key point is also to deliver. This is the time where people look at the banks. This is a time where there's a big crisis. We are not the regions of that. We are a small part of the solution. And I think we should be there. And then what we need to do is to sort of live according to our roots, mainly, and that is to provide banking services to the many, to the many ordinary people and to the many firms. And just before we go, Mr. Henriksen, when you uh, look down from your lofty perch in the north of Europe, you look across the rest of the continent uh, from the other side of the Baltic. Are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling positive or or skeptical or, or otherwise about this grand European experiment? Well, I'm extremely positive about uh, EU. I've been sort of advocating that. I was one of the sort of, when I was young as a student, I worked for Sweden to join. I was in favor of us joining the Euro. And and for me, I participated in a lot of boring meetings at EU in different jobs. So I'm a very sort of a strong uh, proponent for Europe. Do I feel optimistic? Ah, it's pretty hard to feel optimistic in days like these. The one thing I miss, and I want to bring it also on a higher level, is that I miss a sort of, in the financial crisis, there was a global leadership. The G20 took a leadership and showed the way out of the crisis. I miss that a bit too much now. I think there are too many countries that are focusing on, on helping themselves. I miss sort of a, a more... Um, strategic approach from world leaders, and that includes Europe. My thanks to Jens Hendriksen for joining us for this week's episode of the Chiefs edition of The Big Interview. Look out for our next episode with the editor of The Sunday Times, Emma Tucker. The Big Interview was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Sam Impey. In Zurich, I'm Tyler Brule. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.